This is the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast from Advanta IRA, where we show you how to explore investments beyond Wall Street and open your eyes to new options for your portfolio. It's time to take control and give yourself the freedom to choose where you invest your money. Welcome to another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. Today, we are very pleased to welcome on Brian Daly with Ground Four Finance. Uh, definitely going to be some interesting things to unpack here today. I'm really excited for the conversation. Uh, and, you know, as I don't think anyone can introduce themselves as well as the person being interviewed. So I'll let you kind of give a brief introduction of yourself, you know, kind of how, you know, what was the what got you to the place that you're in right now? And then we'll jump into the topic of hand of uh, smaller or fractionalized investing in real estate debt. So, Brian, thanks very much for being on with us today. Well, I'm happy to be here. And uh, that story begins when I was about 14 or 15 years old. At the time, uh, my dad sent me to the library to learn about investing uh, and specifically uh, he said, go learn what a mutual fund is. If you find one and that you want to invest in, tell me about it, pitch me. And, uh, you know, your summer earnings, whatever you put in for your summer earnings, I'll double it. I was very quickly motivated, became very interested in investing, learned about dollar cost averaging at a very early age. Uh, and I've always been fascinated with investing. And if you fast forward many years later, I won't say how many years later. So fast forward to 2012, uh, Congress passed the Jobs Act and important parts of the Jobs Act were intended to liberalize capital markets. And this fascinated me for a lot of reasons. I had the good fortune of meeting my co-founder, Nick Bargava, who actually worked on that legislation. He lobbied Congress and worked with the interest groups and the legislators to help formulate and and include Title III, uh, which was the crowdfunding, equity crowdfunding part of the legislation. Uh, we were introduced because of our uh, interest in that, his expertise in it. And we started talking about different ideas for how a mass market investment product could be created using that legislation. And that was the genesis of Ground Floor. Um, it was you know long way since then, obviously, but that's how we got our start. Great. Yeah. I got my start in my career in finance right in the, you know, beginning of all of that, you know, <clears throat> back in late 2011, 2012. So it's been interesting to kind of, you know, I don't obviously have a, a basis of knowledge of saying, hey, here's what it was like beforehand and dealing with private equities and everything else, which was such a walled garden beforehand, which again, you know, to the democratization of, you know, private financial markets has been really interesting to watch. And again, you know, to the you know, veins of increased offerings for like your reg A's and then different reg D's with regard to accredited investors, syndications, commercial real estate, all the different, you know, forms and flavors of what kind of came out of that. It's been really interesting to watch. Now, one of the more interesting segments, I think it's, you know, easy enough to say, okay, it's, it's easy to see these people that are trying to raise, you know, millions of dollars to invest in an apartment building or commercial real estate or XYZ venture are saying, okay, well, you're still, again, walled garden, you know, quarter million dollars of annual income, million dollars of assets, excluding your personal house, things like that. That makes sense. But the the smaller dollar figure stuff I really find interesting. And that's, again, what Ground Floor kind of focuses on is that. And again, I, I know you said, and I'm sure you're going to get into why you don't like the crowdfunding side of things, but with fractionalized investing, and when we had our, our pre-conversation, I really enjoyed, you know, the 
the thought process you had about what exactly it is you do, and I'm a big fan of real estate. Um, the fact that they call it an alternative asset, I find disingenuous because, you know, the Romans weren't buying stocks and ETFs at Microsoft. They were conquering right. real estate. They were going out and acquiring land. Um, so there, you know, as few things as you know, non, as as more traditional than that. So let's kind of get into, you know, you you identify this need on, you know, this is the segment you want to focus on. So what does that kind of start out as? Well, the thing about alternatives, there, there are a lot of problems with alternatives from the standpoint of a retail investor, right? If you think about public market investing, it's very regulated. Uh, you know, we have generally accepted accounting principles. We have, you know, a disclosure regime, you know, case and cues, for example, for earnings. Uh, there's, you know, a, a time honored process for you're publishing a prospectus about a company that's coming public, e even in the world of ETFs and mutual funds, right? Everything is regulated in a way that makes it more or less a level playing field. Now, in general, you're buying secondary shares and you're sitting at a poker table with people who can game you. And we saw that in the meme stock phenomenon with short sellers and, you know, the Redditors were battling. And so that can be. You know, the world of trading is, in, to my way of thinking, very different from the world of saving and investing. And, you know, there's a big distinction to be made in public markets around that. One of the problems in alternatives is that there's no such disclosure regime, right? Whether you're investing in a commercial office building or a startup, right, um, the disclosures are governed by the rules of fraud and misrepresentation. Sure. Um, there's no standardized, or there hasn't been a standardized. You know, I, I think I read the other day, two trillion dollars is invested via uh, Regulation D, the 506C or 506B, uh, you know, exemption to securities law. Two trillion dollars, and it, it, it's basically invested in what is essentially the wild west. I mean, it is, uh, it's unregulated, it's unmanageable from the standpoint of a retail investor who's just trying to figure out how to get the benefit of this and allocate and not lose. Um, it's at once very threatening, right? Because of that and, and difficult to navigate, even if you can access it. And at the same time, um, it also feels a little esoteric, right? And unfamiliar. So when we started looking for the product, right? That we were gonna finance, what is this product gonna be made of? We listened to investors talk about what they, what some of these concerns were. And one of the big concerns is we want something that we understand. Well, what's more understandable than single family residential real estate, right? At any given point, 62, 63, 64% of Americans own a house. So, <laughs> and, you know, and over time, many, many more, a much higher proportion of, of Americans will. And so we figured it was very familiar. And of course, real estate in general is tangible. So you kind of know it's not a trading card or an NFT or something like that. It's a, you know, it's tangible. People know what it is. So the familiarity of it and the tangibility of it drove us there. On the regulatory side, we committed ourselves to the disclosure regime and the regulatory oversight that came with Regulation A. That's akin to what public companies have to do because, again, we felt that would be not only healthier for investors, but it would be healthier for our platform. And I think we are a better platform because we have submitted to that regulatory oversight over time and because we file audited 
statements annually and have for seven or eight years now. And because we're subject to regulatory oversight, we have to follow rules for disclosure. These are the things that mass market investors expect. And then they expect one other thing that we got right from the very early days of ground floor, which is if you go back to those days that mentioned that I started off investing in mutual funds, one of the things I thought was pretty cool is if I had $100 to invest, I could invest it in three different funds and I could reinvest the dividends, right? Dividend reinvestment program has been around a long time in public market investing. And I could buy a fraction of a share, no matter how expensive Fidelity Magellan or 20th century you know, growth fund was at the time, or if, if it was an international fund, I could invest fractionally so that I could control my exposure and my weighting in my portfolio. Now you see that in public stock investing, like on Amazon, right? If you go, if you go to Robinhood and buy Amazon, you don't have to afford a full Amazon share, right? You can buy a fraction of a share or a fraction of Google or a fraction of Tesla, and you can build up your own portfolio. Well, that never really existed in alternatives either. And so we fractionalized our offering down to $10. Actually, originally it was $100. Uh, in 2014, we fractionalized it down to $10. And this year with our Ground Floor 3.0 release that's launching here next week, actually, uh, it'll probably be out by the time the, it'll probably be launched by the time the show airs, uh, we're fractionalizing down to the $1 level, which means you can essentially index and diversify to your heart's content no matter how much money you have. And that's purposeful. So those three things, those three issues and alternatives we set out to solve. And I think one of the reasons we've been successful, you know, $300 million under, uh, under assets under management, $1 billion transacted on the platform by retail investors uh, since we started. I, I think one reason we've been successful is to have gotten those three things right. Sure. So let's just kind of, again, start a little bit from the beginning and then get into the actual, uh, you know, thesis of, you know, how this kind of breaks down into real estate because, and I've said this a lot and it's cheesy, but it holds true. You know, real estate is many things, but cheap, it's not. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And most of the time can be very beneficial, but again, it is a high dollar priced item. You know, you're talking oh, yeah. about buying an asset. That's the same as Burke a, you know, it's talking about these large dollar figure items that, you know, okay, great. It looks awesome on paper. You can look at a track record and especially over the last decade, you know, up into the right is what it looks like. But again, you know, figuring out how that works on a smaller level, but to the point, you know, a lot of our audience, you know, are probably tangentially familiar, at least with, you know, uh, different types of Jobs Act uh, requirements, you know, Reg D versus Reg A. And what people may not necessarily be aware of, and a lot of people just kind of focus on, hey, you know, do I have to be accredited or not accredited to do this? Maybe they're not necessarily as familiar, like you said, that there's a lot of you know, stripping away of the reporting requirements and kind of those safety nets, safety nets and catches that traditional security markets enjoy that aren't necessarily offered to the alternative space. So maybe just, again, on a very high level, yeah. maybe talk about what kind of things that people that operate under the, again, crowdfunding section of Reg A, what they're required to do versus someone that is doing a, um, let's say a Reg D, uh, you know, closed offering that's accredited investor only. Just, again, high level so people kind of understand, again, sure. maybe some of the perceived benefit of doing something that has a little bit more oversight. Well, so, for example, um, if you are, you know, conducting a Regulation D offering, you know, you're going to disclose uh, whatever you think investors need to see in order to make in, in order to make the sale of the investment or in order to be successful in offering the investment. 
And if you, if I'm out raising venture capital from a VC firm or angel investors, you know, the mileage will vary. You know, some angel investors want, you know, a, a model, you know, that, that maybe at the early stages of your startup, you don't have. Uh, VC firms certainly want to get into your unique economics analysis and, and assess very technical underpinnings of your business that are, you know, the domain of an expert investor, a professional investor who's going to invest a significant quantum of capital and establish a large ownership position in that, right? That style of investing and that, um, that burden is largely inappropriate for the overwhelming majority of individual retail investors. Um, you know, the concentration, the quantum of capital, the expertise required is to be fair, beyond even somebody who's been investing since age 14 or 15, I worry about it, you know, uh, getting into the weeds of it just from a time management perspective, if nothing else. Um, and so what I like about the disclosure regime uh, that Reg A, by the way, Reg A is not new. Reg A has been around since the 33 Act. Uh, that's 1933. Um, it's been modernized and it's been expanded. And what it offers is a standard of disclosure where risk factors must be disclosed. Uh, factors, relevant factors have to be, um, you know, discussed within an offering circular. Uh, a lot of data about the investments, the underlying investments, how they work, what investors can expect, what risks they should analyze. And it's not just because the issuer says so, the commission reviews those offering circulars. And they make sure that all of the requirements within the rules have been met and they ask questions about inconsistencies. So, you know, maybe an eagle-eyed investor would catch some of that stuff, but professional regulators, you know, who are lawyers by and large, are gonna catch that. And we, we experienced that. They asked lots of questions about how we were disclosing and is this consistent and is it consistent with this rule and does it meet the standard of this rule? And once you file the offering circular, and by the way, the SEC doesn't approve anything. They're not in the approval business. They qualify it. It means you have met the standard for disclosure that is set forth by the rules. And we've done that numerous times with numerous offerings. But then after that, there's an ongoing requirement but if you're a private investor, you know what it's like. If you put money into a company or into a real estate project, and then you never hear from the company again, well, that cannot happen with a publicly regulated offering because if you won't be allowed to offer securities anymore. <laughs> you're violating the rule around ongoing disclosure. And not only that, a reggae offering has to be refreshed and requalified every three years. So there are standards and guidelines and practices that are enforced by regulators on pain of, you know, rescission, right? Uh, unwinding the offering, having to give the capital back on pain of shutting down your ability to conduct future offerings. And so companies like us, you know, two things happen. One, we spend a lot of money and time making sure that we are compliant. And then in the process, we feel an accountability to make the investment better. And by better, I mean better disclosed, better managed, better communicated, uh, both at the time of the offering and ongoing. And I think that's a, that's a material difference uh, to the scalability of these investments 
to a broader audience beyond the top 4% of US households and institutions who have the capital to go concentrate and, you know, uh, and the time and expertise to go focus. I, I actually think for accredited investors, it's these Reg A offerings are much better because of these standards of disclosure that they get. But even if they never read a word of it, knowing that it's there, disciplined the issuer to go do the work to make it efficiently uh, consistent, homogenous, uh, relatable, understandable. And, and this is what we did. It took a long time, by the way. It took five years and a couple million dollars, you know, to get to the stage where we were able to offer these securities to accredited investors and non-accredited investors nationwide. But now we've done that work and we're a reliable issuer and a trusted platform for tens of thousands of investors as a result. Yeah, no, those are really great points to make. And that's something that I run across a lot with people getting into the space of private securities a lot is that, you know, they just don't realize that saying, hey, you know, I see a prospectus. Okay, great. This all looks awesome. And, you know, me being a glutton for punishment, I enjoy reading those. But the average person, it's basically NyQuil on paper format. You know, right. it's going to put you to sleep because there's a lot of stuff in there. Then unless, again, you're either someone like me that just enjoys it or you're someone that is, you know, maybe also a deal sponsor or putting these together, a lot of it doesn't necessarily always kind of make sense. And especially with some stuff where there is less reporting requirements that are out there, well, again – like you said, it forces people to do work and reevaluate stuff. And I think, that, again, that can be a really big benefit. Again, like you said, very much so to people that have a lot of capital, but also specifically towards the retail investor. Because, you know, while I would love to say that everyone needs to be protected equally, the people that don't qualify as accredited investors have a lot more to lose from losing much less than people that are significantly higher net worth of losing, you know, a multiple of that. So having some of those safeguards built in and having kind of a mechanism that will direct people to, again, continually do work and continually reevaluate this, I think is really important. Um, and unless you have something else to add to that point, let's kind of now start looking at structurally how this works. You mentioned that what you're looking at is single family home base. So a lot of times private securities, syndications, you know, anything in the spectrum of the Jobs Act or private securities is mainly focused on commercial development or industrial real estate. There's not a whole lot I should say there are some very big players in this space, but you know, a lot of them either are focusing on the equitable ownership of stuff, but very few people at least in my summation and what I've experienced, focus on debt in the single family space. So let's kind of get into the, the nuts and bolts of exactly kind of what you started putting together and again, how this actually works functionally from the fractionalized investing in single family real estate. So I would love to claim that we were just so smart that we figured out that this would be the right product, you know, to scale. Uh, that's not actually the story. Uh, necessity is the mother of uh, In our case, uh, we needed a product that had a few key attributes in order to uh, gain some traction in the early days. Remember, when we launched 2013, uh, you know, nobody ever really heard of any of this. Right? It wasn't in the public consciousness. And so it sounded too good to be true. It needed to be formatted in a, in a way that, you know, you could win some early adopters uh, in the early going. And... Uh, I'm really glad that we discovered this corner of real estate investing that we did. The requirements that we realized we needed and we found with the sort of short-term business purpose real estate investment loans uh, 
we needed something that was short term, which ideally like a year or less uh, before you'd get your capital back. Because a lot of times in these alternative investments, you put your capital in a fund or in a real estate project or, a, you know, collection of trading cards or art or whatever, you never know when you're going to get your money back, right? If it's not an income producing asset, you may not even get any payments along the way, right? You're just waiting for it to sell or something, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's unclear. Windfall so, investing. Yes. Well, not with this investing because the data shows, you know, if you're lending money to somebody, they owe you that money back with interest at a certain time period. And if they don't pay it back, there are consequences. That's not true with equity investing, right? Equity investing, we say, hey, if you invest in ground floor as a startup, which by the way, 7,000 of our customers have invested in ground floors equity itself and own 30% of the company. And I field questions from investors who put money into ground floor as an equity investment all the time. Well, when are we going to get liquid? Well, the nature of investing in a startup or most alternatives, you don't know. And as an equity investor, you're waiting for the ability to trade it or on a secondary market, or you're waiting for a sale or something. Uh, well, not true with our loans, right? When we loan money to a real estate investor who's going to fix and flip a house or build a new house, or um, those are the two main use cases, you know, they owe the money back on a certain time period. Sometimes it's a 12-month loan, sometimes it's an 18-month loan, but they owe the money back. And on balance, on average, our investments have returned capital within 10 to 12 months, which is really fast. The second thing we knew we needed was the ability to show a high yield, right? I mean, in order to induce people to sort of show up and try this new thing, it needed to be worth it, right? And so at the time, you know, uh, we thought eight, nine, 10% would be worth it. Now interest rates are higher. So now we write loans that are higher, higher rates, you know, 12, 13, 14%, because we had to raise rates along with the prevailing market. But we needed something that was high yield enough. And thirdly, we needed something that allowed us to make money as a capital provider from the recipient of the capital without charging investors any fees. Because one of our insights with alternatives and a lot of other um, fund structures in particular is a lot of the money that investors would otherwise make ends up going to fees. Well, that's not true with our platform because we don't charge any fees. We're zero fee because we picked a space where we can return capital quickly generate a high yield uh, for the investor and not charge any fees off that yield. It's Great. pretty incredible, right? I mean, that's a, yeah. and, that, and so that's what led us down this path to sort of making these loans. We originate loans to real estate investors, and then we turn around and we fractionalize them to, we use our own capital to fund the loan. And then we use, you know, we use our platform to fractionalize it to thousands of investors who participate, Great. you know, $100 at a time, $200 at a time, typically. Yeah. So again, just to kind of, again, I, I love getting into the, the, you know, the, the high level of this, but just so make sure that we're clear on the same page, essentially the investment product is investing into debt, you know, secured by single family real estate, where you have a fractionalized ownership of a particular loan tied to a singular piece of real estate, recorded correct. mortgage. I'm assuming these are all first position, correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So first position loan secured by single family real estate, and then in general, your company goes out, funds the loan, and then on the back end, you bifurcate it to all the investors. So they come in, they plug in, you reach a funding goal, that closes, on to the next one, on to the next one, correct? And at any given time, we have 80 to 100 loans all over the country that are funding, 
right? That you mm -hmm. can participate in and allocate into. And of course we have tools to help you pick and choose and filter. So you're not, you know, individually going <laughs> loan by loan, but if you want to, you can choose to over allocate into an all it's your portfolio. You get to decide. And we think that's another really important point, but it's a great, it's a great product. It's, I don't think these yields with this sort of a hold period and this ability to fractionalize is available anywhere else uh, in the investing universe, frankly. Certainly well, especially, not. Yeah, so. I would say especially to the point of um, debt. Um, you know, I think there's things, again, there's no two things are exactly alike in investing or life for that matter. But I think there's a lot more, you know, analogies to be drawn in the the acquisition ownership side of things. Um, sure. But really, you know, something especially for, you know, doing IRA work and alternative assets and retirement plan work for so long. Uh, that's a really popular instrument from people for a myriad of reasons, especially in real estate. Uh, when you can remove yourself from, you know, active ownership, you know, you don't have to deal with tenants, termites and toilets. You know, there's some there's some benefits to that for whether you're, you know, a, a flesh and blood retail investor, an IRA, an entity. Uh, you know, there's inherent niceties that come along with just being on the paper side of things. Um, well, it's interesting because yeah. when people think about real estate investing, there are a lot of ways to invest in real estate, right? There's the world doesn't lack for a way to invest in real estate, right? I can buy a REIT of office buildings. I can, you know, I can buy, uh, I, I can go out and if I have enough money, I can go out and buy a rental property, right? And own a rental property and have a loan on it and get the tax benefits from that. That qualifies. Uh, I can, there are fractionalized platforms where I can own a slice of a rental property, right? Mm -hmm. What there isn't out there, uh, well, and there wasn't until ground floor showed up, is the ability to own a part of the debt. Now, of course, we've started to expand because of this market position we have, we've started to expand into equity as well. So now you can buy, you know, equity in a house flip or in a, a new construction project. And we're experimenting with all kinds of products now that we're 10 years old and have a track record and have all these customers. Uh, but in the early days, I think, and, our, and still our core product is this debt product that I think has uncommon benefits that are very difficult to match. I mean, we've delivered over 10%, you know, 10% returns to investors historically. And that includes during a long time when rates were a lot lower. Uh, you would be challenged to make that on a rental property, right? Uh, house price appreciation should be about four to six percent a year historically. It may regress to that mean or lower. Uh, it would be difficult to earn rent that is in excess of you know that's at a cap rate much higher than that two three four percent maybe mm -hmm. on a on a yield basis. And so when you add up, wait a minute, I'm going to go buy a rental property or I'm going to participate fractionally in a rental property. Why would you do that? Aside from the oh, I get to be an owner right vibe of it uh it doesn't pay as well as being the debt provider the, well the yeah absolutely guys, the credit guys are always the <laughs> smartest guys in the room in every market just watch out yeah and, and the equity stuff i mean especially from the perspective of you know and i just kind of coined it windfall investing um you know it's market rents are going to be at a certain pace and then you're relying on an appreciable gain of the underlying asset as opposed to some type of baked in rate of return, which is, again, one reason I personally like notes is that you get to, you know, adjust in a lot more real time with the, you know, particular markets, the ability to, um, you know, kind of have a 
a knowledge basis of when your windfall is going to be, you know, when that water waterfall moment is going to happen as opposed to leases where, you know, let's say that in turn, there's a market correction. Now the loan maybe is underwater. Something happens. Well, those rents or the properties underwater. Now, what do you do with rents? Do they go down? Well, again, the, the perspective of having a much bigger, you know, kind of lottery ticket, definitely there with the equity side of things, but not so much with the debt. And again, I like that for a lot of reasons. And two, you know, if something were to hit the fan, if you're an equitable owner, you know, an equity side of things, well, then the four property might get foreclosed. You know, what happens right. if you can't make those payments as opposed to the debt when they don't make the payments, then you get a piece of real estate. So if something bad happens, you still have something good happening. And, and we do, we extent. do, we do end up foreclosing on about 1% of the properties that we finance. Mm-hmm. And when we foreclose, sometimes we don't re- recover enough money to repay the loan, but that's more than offset by all of the money you make on the plus side in a debt portfolio, which is again, why we fractionalize it, right? So that yeah. you don't have all your eggs in one basket. I think the other problem with uh, equity investing that people aren't necessarily thinking of is you don't know how long your capital is gonna be locked up. Uh, you don't know what the ultimate exit price is gonna be. Uh, you don't know what's gonna happen along the way. And you don't necessarily have any recourse along the way. Mm-hmm. You know, if we hit into a really big recession and, you know, people can't pay their rent or, you know, their vacancies, right, run amok uh, and your property is vacant, there went your income, which your income is a substantial part of what you're hoping to get out of the investment in the first place, that can go away in no time. Yeah. Uh, and so I think, you know, it's been possible to invest in notes before. The problem was you had to participate in a syndication or in a pool of notes, which has its own problems around concentration and control. And what's unique about our platform is you're not being required to participate in a fund. There's no fund manager who's gatekeeping when you get your money back. You get your money back as each loan repays. It's, and then you can reinvest it or withdraw it or do whatever you want. Uh, yep. And you are deciding what risk you want to take when that's very unusual to have that ability as a retail investor. And again, this year we're taking it down to a $1 minimum. So, you know, even if you only had a hundred dollars to invest, you get a hundred loans in your portfolio, which is tremendous level of diversification on the order of what hedge funds would want. Sure. So two things that I want to kind of cover um, towards the end of this is one uh, big thing that is inherent with, any type of alternative investment is, you know, a standard of liquidity. These things inherently, when you do them, are going to be much less liquid than, you know, something on a securities market. You know, if you have a oh, yeah. share of Microsoft, there are market makers all day and twice on Sunday that are making markets for this stuff. So, for sure. again, everything being what it may, there's going to be downsides to everything. But I guess one of the kind of things that an investor on this type of platform, and again, it's well understood for the people that are interested in the, you know, larger syndications, Reg D, accredited investor offerings. But from the, you know, where this kind of bridges that gap from there to the open securities market, I think it's important for people to understand is that these, and correct me if I'm wrong from what you're saying, is that you're invested into a particular, you know, loan. And again, the averages be what they may of when they repay, you know, that's kind of your your waterfall moment of when it repays and yep. 
the loan goes back out. But in the interim, how liquid or illiquid is the investment? Is there a buyback clause kind of like with larger Reg D stuff? Or what does it look like from the investor perspective we, when they allocate funds to this? So we we have uh, we have always thought that there may be need for a secondary market. And of course, intellectually, we're curious about a secondary market, right? I mean, any any platform in this space, that's an interesting problem to solve as an entrepreneur. But we keep waiting for customers, you know, to, uh, you know, to demand it. And because the loans are so short term, we really haven't seen a lot of demand for it. And the truth is, you know, if you compare investing in ground floor to an, a REIT or an E-REIT, right? An E-REIT might pay you a 6% or 8% dividend per year, call it 2% a quarter, best case. If you are diversified on ground floor over time, you're going to see one-tenth of your portfolio come back to you every month. So in a, in a world where you see literally not 10% per year, 10% per month of your capital is flowing back to you on the platform, that is a very common experience. Uh, the need for tradability or short-term liquidity isn't so great. Now, there are cases where people might have an emergency where they need to liquidate their portfolio, and we provide for that, but there's no big market for it because the product is so short-term. We've speculated that if we got into longer-term products at scale, that that would be the time when secondary market infrastructure would make sense. Because mm -hmm. what people really ignore is that uh, the transaction costs in secondary markets that are thinly traded are extremely high. Yeah. Um, you know, you brought up Microsoft. Well, that's very broadly traded, right? There's, there's a very large order book. And in fact, multitudes of order books, <laughs> you know, all over the world for that particular asset. That's not really true in most alternatives, right? There's mm -hmm. not a big order book. But I think those are interesting problems to be solved over the long term, especially as duration moves out. You know that yeah and especially like looking at it like you said if if you average it and i'm assuming when people come in to do this type of investment you can see origination dates so you can kind of peg you know insofar as you're saying okay this one originated yeah. yesterday okay the likelihood of it running 12 18 months is probably better than something that might still have some space that's originated in seven months ago um now from that perspective what does it kind of look like if there is well should, let's back up a little bit so you know loans are great when they run their full course you know you get 18 percent on your money over 100 grand that's great but if they repay early what is some kind of safeguards to investors that are built in to make sure that you know someone doesn't come to you one day buy a house flip it and then you miss out on all the interest and you just kind of have to eat the transactional cost of that money being tied up what are some things that are kind of yeah our investors our investors don't have to care about that uh, and that's one of the great virtues of fractionalization, especially hyper-fractionalization, because if one loan repays in one month, there's always another one at a, in a similar place with similar attributes and similar characteristics ready to take its place. And we built automated tools that allow you just to roll that money right into the next one uh, or to stop that, right? So we, like in our Ground Floor 3.0 app, uh, the mobile app that's launching next week, you know, you can set a cash target that says, you know what, don't stop reinvesting until I get a thousand bucks because I want to withdraw a thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars. And the software will do that for you. But then once you hit that number, it'll start reinvesting again. Right. And so software can solve a lot of these problems. And what's interesting to me as an analog is 
the idea of what happened with ETFs, right? ETFs made it, you know, ETFs, depending on what you're invested in, are always rebalancing, right? They're always rebalancing depending on whether they're market cap weighted or issue weighted, right? They're always rebalancing. There are always new companies being added and dropped because, you know, maybe that's it tracks a certain index or a certain type of style of investing. And the retail investors don't have to think about that at all. Right? They just know they're in this ETF. It's a theme. They're invested in it. If they're in an ESG theme and some company is no longer regarded as an ESG investment, it's quietly dropped. The retail investors don't have to do a damn thing. And that's where alternatives need to get to. In order to really scale, alternatives need to get to the same level that public markets approach through fractionalization and structures that allow people to sit back and know what their money is doing and have control over it. I think it's ridiculous to think that we would turn it over to a fund manager who gets paid one, two, three percent to manage your money for you, right? That's that's ridiculous and and unnecessary. No, uh, absolutely. In today's world, right? Like you can be your own fund manager. We don't pay. I mean, this is what happened to mutual funds and active investing. No mutual fund manager ever beats the index that they're trying to beat for very long. They might beat it one year, but then they're going to fail over the ensuing periods and regress to the mean or worse. Uh, same thing in alternatives. We need these same thing in alternatives, these same um, benefits for retail investors. And that's what we've been building, right? That's that's why we're building Ground Floor 3.0, because it's a way of indexing into alternatives in a category that people know that's in a low volatility investment, right? Which is firstly in residential real estate debt, right? That I think is starting to prove itself uh, as an asset that can come of age in the same way uh, that ETFs did for a lot of the same reasons. Yeah, absolutely. So looking at it from the perspective of the investment side, um, now with regard to these things being originated and how you know it tracks with uh, we cover liquidity we cover you know kind of how you know you can average your like liquidity profile if you will by investing short term or, or, or late term early term now with regard to that is there any inherent benefit to investing early term in something like this under this platform is there you know kind of a first in first paid structure or is it just basically if there's still space in that particular bucket for that loan um, how would that be repaid? Everyone's parapasu. So everyone has the same standing when you're fractionalized in a loan, uh, whether you invest at the beginning of it, like on our, some of our new construction projects. We have a large new construction loan. We will, you know, offer a piece of it, you know, at the time construction begins, and we will offer a piece of it as construction is wrapping up, right? And some people look for those later you know, tranches of investment because they realize, hey, wait, some of the risk has been, you know, already taken off the table because we're, you know, the house is almost done or it's complete. And now all we have to do is list it. And some people want that early part of the loan because their money is going to be working longer. And, you know, some people aren't paying any attention to that, right? They just know that if it's a good project, you know, they're going to get paid and they're really looking at the duration right, of how long their capital is going to be tied up. And I think the great thing about our platform at this stage is you can find all of it. Right? There's, mm. there's, there is, you know, all of that is available and you can choose to spend the time to go look for it and allocate into it as you see fit. 
or you can let the software do it. Either way, you know, you can win. Now, with regard to the, you know, kind of the end recipient of these things, I'm assuming, and just from what you're telling, kind of context clues, these are not going to be any type of owner-occupied properties, right? Never. So you kind of get, you get rid of the headache of Dodd-Frank and all that kind of... Yeah, um, I'll tell frame. you, the, the, the thing about this is that the other, the other warning I have for people investing in rental properties is there's no free lunch, right? The money that's being put into these properties is being used to improve them, right? You are providing a venture loan to do value-added development work on a property that is aging housing stock, it's product development work, right? There's value added. That's why you can make money. And when we offer equity slices in these projects, as we're doing via our ground floor labs uh, sandbox to a small number of investors who are testing these products out, you're getting, you're getting to stand in the shoes of the person who's actually, you know, running that project, the general partner on that project. And that's pretty cool, right? But the reason you're getting paid 24% IRR, you know, on some of these construction projects is because you're adding value to the world. When you buy a slice of a rental home, you're not adding value to anything. <laughs> and you're not, you're not being paid for anything except the hope and the prayer that house prices go up enough to reward you for the risk that you're taking. Mm -hmm. You know that you're going to make income along the way. You don't have that problem if you're a value if you're invested in value added construction and renovation, which is why I think a lot of these projects pay, you know, the rates that they pay. And I assume that kind of plays into the broader issue of you know just real estate inventory in the United States as well. Um, you know, we always, you know, you hear about it on the news constantly, but there is, especially for people that operate in our areas, you really see just you know, how little inventory there is, and especially yeah. with the population concentrations in the United States be what they are. You know, personally, I'm located in Pinellas County, Florida, which has been basically 100% developed for 70 years now. Wow. Um, you know, the 1950s was one of the last times that we had any type of, you know, actual land development here. You know, some, you know, they're, they're going up, not, you know, single family anymore. But, you know, you hear about that and there's a reason for it is that the lack of inventory, what do you do? You know, you can't create new stuff, so you have to improve stuff. And that's, again, kind of where this comes into play is the, uh, you know, the value add improvement for these types of loans going out there and creating value and, and driving the necessity to use a product like this on the borrower side of things, if you will, not to get you know too far off the beaten path of the investor centric stuff we're talking about. But again, you have to look at the consumption side of this as well, of what drives the need for something like this to be out there, not only to offer an investor an option, but offer someone that needs capital the access to it for this type oh, of product. And in this, in this time, we're seeing demand for capital from more qualified borrowers on better projects on better terms than ever in our 10 years of operation. And the reason right. is obvious, right? Capital markets are constricted. And so you as a retail investor have a golden opportunity to step in and be the bank that the banks won't be and mm -hmm. to be paid accordingly uh, without taking much risk. At the end of the day, it, all risk is relative. And of course there's risk in everything, right? Uh, but the risk is very controllable in this market more controllable than I think it's ever been. Uh, and that's, um, that's to me as an investor, that's an enticing opportunity. I love it. No, absolutely. I think we're right on the same page with that. I really enjoy, you know, how the markets evolve from, 
know, you've been doing this certainly longer than I have, but at least watching, you know, people start to kind of come out of their shells from the Great Recession in 11 and 12 and then see, you know, what's happened, where the pain points were and how it's evolved into what it is today. has been really interesting to watch, um, oh, yeah. you know, and and one constant, though, you know, it's is really looking at, you know, the velocity of money on the um, on the institutional side of things, you know, your big banks doing the point of sale lending to people and just how, you know, it was much more restrictive. It got a little bit less so, but, you know, anytime that they is really any indication of monetary policy restriction or any type of, again, negative monetary policy from anyone's standpoint, it's not a small trickle on how that affects, you know, the end user. It's like precipitous. It is the, you know, it is the coyote driving off the cliff with the anvil coming on top of it. So being able to be able to be to be able to be involved in a market that doesn't have, you know, the the whims of that to be beholden to, I think is really important. And, you know, we see it well, all the and, time. And by the way, one of the interesting aspects of this that I've seen through the ups and downs of COVID and higher rates and fears over inflation and you know, a half dozen other developments over 10 years in the economy. And people forget back in 2018, rates were going up as well. The Fed was was raising and people were like, oh, shit, you know, what's going to happen in the market? It, I, what, I, what amazes me, and by the way, VCs and institutional investors don't understand this. They don't get it. It doesn't make sense to them. The retail investor is the most resilient source of capital. People are smarter and more capable than we think they are. They know what's up. There's wisdom in the crowd uh, and they've shown it. You know, they show up and they're willing to put capital into things that, you know, people who have investment committees and limited partners and, you know, uh, career risk won't. And one thing I dearly love about the retail investor is their agency. They are their own decision maker. And when we have millions of people who are empowered to make their own decision without the impedance of needless intermediaries who are just taking fees for nothing, uh, for locking up their capital, that's the kind of thing that I think financial technology can unlock. That's what we've been working on for 10 years. And I think people are starting to catch on. It's, it's starting to become more evident in a way that this became more evident in public markets, you know, with indexing, you know, John Vogel preached indexing, you know, from the seventies, you know, and it took a while to catch on, you know, with the investors, but it did catch on. Uh, and the same thing's going to happen in alternatives. Yeah. And I really like the, the statement you made about, you know, the agency of the individual investor. And also again, to the point of, you know, the larger institutions and VCs not realizing it. I mean, just take the segment of the world I live in and retirement plans in the U S there's roughly 37, 30, between like 34 and $38 trillion worth of assets. That's a 38 with 12 zeros and four commas behind it. That's, that's a lot of money out there. So unbelievable. You know, and that's just retirement plan. It's not including like what people have socked away in other places. So to discount the retail investor side of things, I feel like is, you know, you know, shooting yourself in the foot is probably lightly, maybe both feet or both kneecaps would be a better analogy for that. But um, well, we, we've been out talking to other originators of real estate credit and uh, and of real estate equity investment as well. And we're encouraging them to partner with us to access our retail investor base and help build more retail product. And a lot of them are afraid of the retail investor or don't or think it's too expensive or too slow. And we can show them 
and we're starting to show, we, we announced a partnership program in our first two partners last month. We're starting to show how people who are doing amazing work in real estate finance can tap into that retail base. And I'm not trying to say that everything in real estate should be financed directly by retail investors, but I also think it shouldn't be zero. Mm -hmm. right? There's a oh. non-zero proportion of retail investor capital that can and should be financing the future of what we build in many different categories, stuff we haven't even thought of yet. And I'm excited by that as an entrepreneur, because I think this is a disruptive technology that's going to infect a lot of real estate over time to the benefit of the retail investor. And I think that's a very good sentiment to end this on. So uh, before my producer gets on here and uh, she hooks us both off the side of the stage, I'll uh, go ahead and bring it in for a landing. Brian, I really awesome. appreciate your time today. It was an extremely engaging conversation. I, uh, you know, I have a lot of different guests on here and sometimes I can relate more or less to some things they have going on, but, you know, being, you know, my entire career being based in alternative finance and specifically real estate, you know, cutting my teeth with helping clients try to buy REO roles off Bank of America, which is an exercise in futility. I would recommend very few people engage in <laughs> unless you really, yeah, I'm glad that they managed to get those roles cleared out um, and then help my clients get some good deals. But um, again, I really do appreciate your time today. Um, if people are interested in learning more about um, you know, fractionalized investing specifically in real estate debt or what ground floor has going on. What's the best way that they can reach out and find more information? Oh, just come visit us at groundfloor.com or uh, reach out to me on Twitter. I'm just Brian underscore Dally, I guess X, I should say. Or oh. do what all the, uh, the news agencies do X formally parentheses, formally yes, Twitter. Exactly. <laughs> I'm just Brian underscore Dally there and you can find us at groundfloor.com. All right. Fantastic. Well, Brian, thank you so much for being with us today. Again, as always, my name is Alex Perney. Thank you very much for being with us on this edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast and have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. Tune in next week for more investing tips and strategies. Want to hear more episodes of the Alternative Investing Advantage? Search podcast at advantaira.com and subscribe.